we're going to enter into the book of First Thessalonians. And uh, we, as you know, we have been really working hard at this, trying to give you a complete overview of the Scriptures. And what we want to do is we want to provide for not only you, but uh, people coming into our church down the line that if they want to really get a study of the Word of God, that they can, they can uh, get these tapes and begin to go through of them. And it'll be a pretty concise overview of a complete Bible, giving you enough information that you can basically outline every book in the Bible. And that's our goal. And remember, we started all the way back with Genesis a long time ago and have worked our way through pretty consistently. There have been some times when we have uh, stopped and looked at some other things. But basically, we have, uh, you know, stayed pretty on task with it, which is what we wanted to try to accomplish. But today we are moving into the book of First uh, and Second Thessalonians. Now, we'll only do First Thessalonians this week, but these two books kind of go together here, so we're going to talk about it uh, in just a, uh, you know, just a minute how they, how they fit. Now, the background here, again, Paul writes these books in somewhere between 52 and 54 A.D. Uh, when he's at Athens on one of his missionary trips. And just like many of the books that we have seen in the Bible, we, as we accept the Bible, we accept it uh, as the Word of God in every facet. I, I believe the Bible as, that you have in your lap is the most unique book that has ever grace this planet. I'm not one of these guys who believe that God inspired it someplace and then, you know, we got to go search for it to find it today. I'm not one of these guys that believe that when God uh, had the Bible put together that he left it totally to man to decide how it goes. I believe that God had his hand in the preservation of that book in every aspect of it. I believe that God waited till the knowing that the English language was going to be the universal language of the world. I believe that he waited till the English language came to its almost to its perfect form, and then allowed his word that was going to last for the next 400 years to be written. Now that's what I believe. I believe that the chapters in it are in there by God design. I believe that the order of the books are in there by God design. In other words, I'm not one of these guys who say, yeah, I believe the Bible is the Word of God, but I believe man put it together. For me, the issue has always been simple. It's either God's book or it isn't. It isn't halfway. It either is or it isn't. And at least I'm honest about it. I believe the punctuation in the Bible is important. And I believe that God had a hand in everything that He did when He wrote His perfect book. He wrote it in the, in the language that, that at the time was at its most perfect form. I believe there's a reason why he gave it when James was on the throne. I know in my Bible that nine is the number of fruit bearing. I know that in the book of Galatians, which is your ninth book in the New Testament, there's nine fruit of the Holy Spirit of God in verses 23 through 23, which equals the nine. I believe there's a reason for that because I believe when he put it out in 1611, six and three is nine, showing you that that's the most fruitful book that ever lived. I believe that when King James was on the throne, God couldn't put a Bible out to the end of the world when Elizabeth was on the throne or when Charles was on the throne. He'd had to get Jacob, you know why? Or James, you know why? Because James means Jacob. And uh, this is a Jewish book. Every writer in it was a Jew. So what God did is He waited, and as God is the father of history and the author of history, He waited till the English-speaking world and the language got to its pinnacle point when it was at its purest form and gave the world the purest book that it has ever seen unto a Jewish king, Jacob. And uh, you're not going to find many people to believe that, but I don't care. 
I gave up probably the second year of my being a Christian caring what people thought about what I believed. And I believe today that these books are in the placement of First and Second Thessalonians is very important, much like the rest. You remember, a couple of weeks ago we looked at Philippians. And I showed you how the Philippians represented the Philadelphian church period. Last week we looked at Colossians. And I showed you how that the book of Colossians showed you the Laodicean church period. And now today we're going to enter into the book of First and Second Thessalonians, particularly First Thessalonians. Now, 1 Thessalonians falls right in line because where Colossians shows us the Laodicean church, Philippians, the Philadelphia church, and those are all periods in church history you should know by now from our previous studies, the book of 1 Thessalonians shows me right now, right before and including the rapture of the church, what my job should be as a Christian and as what this church should be in detail. Then 2 Thessalonians goes on, and in that book, we're going to look at it next week, he reveals the man of sin. You see, one focuses on the rapture, the other one focuses on the coming of the Antichrist. And wow, wait till we get in that book next week. Now, the breakdown of this book is very simple. It's chapter by chapter. You only got five chapters here. But in these five chapters, <clears throat> Paul gives us a picture of what the model church should be in the last days. In other words, we're living in the last days right now. There's no question about that if you know your Bible. And you know that any moment the rapture of the church is going to take place and this thing's going to begin to wind down. And in this book, he shows us during the Laodicean church period what we ought to be in every aspect as, as a model. In chapter 1, you're going to find the model church for the last days. In chapter 2, you're going to find the model servant for the last days. In chapter 3, you're going to find, divine for you, the model faith in the last days. And in chapter 4, you're going to find, define for you, the model walk of the believer in the last days. And then in chapter 5, you're going to find the model life for the believer in the last days. And what again, it's laying out just another angle, as we've talked about this many, many times, and you hear me make reference to it probably more times than you You'd like to hear it, but that's all right. Price of learning is repetition. This is just another angle on our building a Philadelphian church in the Laodicean church period. So with that in mind, let's go to the Lord and ask Him to open up our hearts. Let's take this time to get any sin out of our life that would block Bible doctrine coming into your life. And let's ask the Lord to open up our hearts and let us see that in our own lives in these last days, how to be a model church, how to be a model servant, how to have a model faith, how to have a model walk, and how to enjoy a model life. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And I love you, Father, and I thank you today for these great people that you have called together in these last days. Thank you for the visitors who are here today, and may they receive a blessing today. They're our honored guests, and Father, we just want to uh, have them enjoy the Lord today with no pressure in any way, shape, or form for anything, but that the Holy Spirit of God may have free course in their life to bless them however their needs may be. But Lord, our own people help today, bless us, show us, help us when we leave here today, do it a little cleaner for you, a little better. Let us leave here a little tighter with you, a little tighter with each other as we understand our job and our ministry and our mission a little clearer. We love you. We ask you now to open up this book. Lord, we've opened the pages. And probably everybody in this room right now has their Bible open to 1 Thessalonians. 
And that's all we can do. You have to open up the words, the verses, the chapters, and show us in this great little book what you have for us. We'll always be careful to give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the first thing we're going to talk about here and going to examine in chapter 1 is we're going to look at the model church. Now, I know that when you come to the book of Acts, and I've already told you this, that Antioch is the model church for the complete New Testament as far as church history is concerned. So when I tell you that this church in Thessalonica is a model church, I'm talking about for you and for me in detail in these last days. This book is specifically aimed at a period of time. And it's for you and for me and how we are going to function uh, and what we should be doing and functioning in these last days. And there's some great principles here. You know, all my life I've, uh, I've found people uh, that uh, came to church for a while, didn't come to church, tried things out, and, you know, and we all go through those things. I have come to the conclusion after many, many years of dealing with churches and people and preachers and Christians and spending time in the Bible that there's no such thing as a perfect church. Now, you've got people that all their lives, they go from church to church to church, and they're constantly on the, on the, on the lookout and trying to find the perfect church. Now, I'm going to tell you right up front, there is no such thing as a perfect church because churches are made up of Christians and human beings, and there ain't no perfect human beings. And, you know, I learned a long time ago, I don't think most churches really want a perfect pastor. I think they just want a real one because there's no such thing as a perfect pastor. I make mistakes. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to make bad choices, bad decisions. We all are. There's nothing really that separates me and you uh, in any way, shape, or form, because we're all fallible, and we all have our old sin natures, even though we're saved and on our way to heaven. And uh, I've come to realize that I'm not perfect, and nor will I ever be a perfect pastor. But I'll try to do the best I can based on what the Word of God says. And, you know, I find, I, I've always found, I always felt that God's people missed the boat when it came for looking for a church. And I've heard every angle over the years that there is. And sometimes I've had people that I always, I wanted to say this to. If they come to church, you know, and they, they nitpick everything about the church. Oh, they like this, but they don't like this. Well, they don't like that, they don't like this. And I understand to a certain degree that it has to fit into your character and your makeup. I understand that. I really do. But you have to realize that, uh, that you know what, uh, I would like to see it where when somebody came to join a church, that they followed them around for about six months and then decided if they criteria how they lived their life fit joining the church. You wouldn't like that, would you? None of us would. I've known people that went to churches, and when they went to church, they judged the song service. They either liked the songs or they didn't like the songs. And I have my style of music. I do. I don't like all this modern stuff that's worldly. I like the stuff that has the doctrine in it. I'm sorry. That's where I'm at. But if I went to a church that, you know, said something else, I, you know, I, I, I deal with it. They, they, they'll judge, the, they'll look around the room, they'll judge the building. Well, they, you know, they, they don't have a cross or, you know, they don't have a Christian flag. They don't have an American. I had a guy one time, I was preaching at a church. He said, well, I don't know how you could come preach to this church, that church. I said, why not? They don't even have an American flag or a Christian flag in the corner. 
It wasn't a care whether God was there or not. They didn't have a flag in the church, you see. People come in and they'll say, well, you know what? What did you think of the preacher today? Well, I thought he was too loud. Well, I thought he was loud enough. I didn't think he was loud enough. Somebody said, well, I think it was really cold in there today. Somebody else said, well, I think it was really hot. Well, if we ever have a church building, I got some builders here, Steve and John. This is, you, you, you probably, if we ever do this, you'll be on the ground floor of this along with some of the other because you know what you're doing. Hook me up a thermostat on the wall that is not connected to anything. Because as long as people think they have the power to turn it wherever they want, they get themselves to think they're cooler, they're hot. It works that way. So put me up a thermostat with a big sign. Adjust the temperature the way you want. We want you to be happy. <laughs> Problem solved. I've been in churches where people have come in, they've judged the preaching, they've judged the temperature, they've judged the song service, they judge the way people dress, they judge the way you cut your hair. They judge the way the lighting is. They judge this. They spent two-hour church service judging everything but themselves. And that becomes the problem. There's no such thing as a perfect church. What you want is a real church. You don't want a perfect church. That'll be in heaven. What you want is the church that has a perfect book, and then the rest takes care of itself, you see. But people get some strange ideas about of what a model church ought to be. Now, I'm going to show you from a Bible what a model church ought to be. And it has nothing to do with the way you dress. No, I like people to dress, you know. I mean, I have standards. But at the same time, I realize that you can't judge a person's spirituality. So you just, you know what? You just got to look at beyond that, see. And uh, when you get into this book, in the chapter, you find the model church. It doesn't say one thing about clothes. Some of you ladies have your hair looks nice today. Some of you look like you just got hit by the north wind. You know what? I don't care. And I would never tell you which you are. I have some recommendations. You ought to try just for men, Jimmy. Take the gray out. I have some, I have some, I have some comments. I'll say I'll give them to the guys. I use just for men. For years and years and years, I went to the hair. I went there to get my hair cut, you know. And I'll tell you that these guys, it's hard to find a real barber shop today, any place. You know that? You got to go in, and you got to. Nobody gets their hair cut anymore. You get it done. <laughs> I don't want my hair done. I want my hair cut. See, I, I'm old school. I know that. I don't want to go in and have some fruity-looking guy looking at me with excitement, wanting on his fingers through my hair to do my hair. My hair don't need done, it needs cut. Now, you say, well, they don't even charge you for cutting it now. They charge me for looking for it. But you know what? That's okay. I know. I know. I know. But you're going to find when you come into this chapter, you don't find any of these things in the model church. And this church is a is a model of what we should be in these last days. This church shows us in detail what in these last days before Jesus comes back, what we ought to be focusing on. So, you want to find a church some point, or you got some friends that are looking for a church? All right, give them this. Now, the first thing, look at verses 6 and 7. Here's what he said. 
and ye be, and you because uh, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost. Verse seven. So that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Then I love verse eight. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. I like that. That's the first thing a church ought to do. It ought to sound out the word of the Lord. I like that. But the thing I want to draw your attention to is that little word there that we've talked about before. You remember when we came through the book of 1 Corinthians and I, we got into chapter 10 and I showed you how that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 it was really a chapter that talked about that everything in the Old Testament that happened to the nation of Israel, good and bad. The Bible says that those things happened to them for our admonition. And it gave us two great words. One of them we don't use anymore. It's a shame. It gave us two great words. It gave us the word example, and it gave us the word in sample. Now, we don't use those words anymore much, but, uh, uh, but the bottom line is the English language has degenerated so much, and we think they're one and the same, but they're really not. All you have to do is look at the, how the words begin and know they're not the same. Example, example, X, 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 like you're going to exit. See that sign up there? Look up there. Everybody look around. See that sign? It says exit. You know why? Because when you leave here, you're going to exit. So an example is something that is outward. See? Now it says in sample. If example is outward, in sample has to be inward. And we studied before that an example is what you do or something you do. But an example is something that you are. And a church not only needs to be an example, but this church was set apart because it was an ensample. Now, Christian, Christian churches as Christians, pastors, leaders in the church, I am never impressed with what somebody, with what somebody can do. I'm always impressed with what somebody is. I never look outwardly. I learned that principle a long time ago. Because you can be outwardly, you can say the right things, you can know the right things, you can give all the right answers, you can be great with everything in the Bible, and you know what? Bottom line is, you can fake that. You can fake it. But what you can't fake is what you really are. You know why? Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, one of these little dynamite, hidden gold nugget verses, it simply says this, If any man love God, the same is known of him. You can fake everything about Christianity with what you do. And it happens all the time. But you cannot fake for 10 seconds true spirituality. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, you can guard your actions. You can make sure that you do the right things, that you even say the right things. But you aren't that good, nor is anybody that good, to hide the real spirituality that what you are will leak out sooner or later. And, of course, that's why uh, when you got over there in, the, in, in, uh, in, in, in 1 Peter, when he's talking about the leaders of the church, pastors, Elders, deacons, the leadership of the church, he says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, that there are to be examples under the flock. Not just examples. In fact, it doesn't even use the word example. If you are an example, you will be the right example. You can be the example 
without being the ensample. Because you can fake that. And so when he comes down through here, the first thing he says about this church is that this church was an ensample. This church not only did the right things, this church had within it men and women who were the right thing. They were the real deal, as we say today. They had everything going for them that needed to go. They were more than just what they did. It's what they were. And then he says this in verse 3. He says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope, that in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Now, not only were they in sample, but if you look at this, there were three things that set this shirt apart. Looking for a church? All right. Here it is. Three things that set this church apart. First of all, it talked about a work of faith. Now, faith is a, is a cheap word today. We use it so cheaply. Just like last week I gave you that little test, or maybe it was a week before, I gave you that little test on knowing who Christ was. No, it was last week. I gave you that little test of chapter 1 in Colossians of do you really know who Christ is? I mean, we walk around and talk about Him. We walk around and pray to Him. We walk around and, and tell everybody about Him. But we really don't know Him ourselves. We have fallen in. Why? Because, remember, Laodicea is just 12 miles down the road. See? Now, faith is another word like that. I promise you, 95% of God's people who use the word faith don't have a clue how the Bible defines faith. They think faith is trusting God for things. And of course, faith is never in the Bible defined as trusting God for anything. Faith is not anything about trusting God. Faith is about what you see that nobody else sees. See? And the greatest example of a model of that in our lives would be Abraham. Abraham's a great example. We don't have time to get into it this morning. But he says things down here that this church was an ensample because of its work of faith. Work of faith. In other words, a work that was based on biblical New Testament faith of seeing what God sees when nobody else can see it. It's an incredible concept. Now, this is why in James chapter 2, and so many people have this problem that they can't get over there in James chapter 2, down verse 20, one of these strange verses, and it says, faith without works is dead. So the crowd takes that, don't know what to do with it. They take it and say, see, you've got to work your way because you don't have faith without works, and so you've got to work your way to heaven. The stu other stupid side of it says, well, that's not what it's talking about. It just talks about this or that, but nobody really knows for sure. This is what he's talking about, Well, work of faith. Your faith is no good. Your faith is absolutely no good, invalid, if you not are involved in a work in a New Testament local church that is doing what God's called it to do. Your faith by itself is nothing if it's not tied to the program that God has called and put forth in this day and age called the church age, the work of the local church. This church had a work of faith. Its faith was in the work that God called them to do within that church. And you're going to find out that the job of the church is onefold, and that is to look out there in this world and see the world as God sees it. Seeing what, when Abraham was out there, the Bible says about Abraham back in the book of Hebrews that he, he endured as seeing him who was invisible. 
Over in Romans chapter 4, probably the greatest definitive verse in all the Bible on faith, other than Hebrews chapter 11. It would be a toss-up. He says that he says there that Abraham called those things that were not as though they were. You see, we think faith is just, well, I don't know what's out there, and I can't see what's out there, so I'm just going to take a step by faith and hope that God sustains me. That's not New Testament Bible faith. When you get into a New Testament local church, a work of faith, you have now the ability through the Word of God to see what nobody else sees. When the whole world sees America and is scared by terror attacks, they'll look at them in London, they'll look at them in Baghdad, they'll look at them around the world, and they're afraid that they're going to happen here. You don't have to fear because you have a book that tells you that you can see what others can't see. You don't have to be afraid. And that's why it's called a work of faith, because we're not going to go do anything that we're afraid of. That's not in our nature. But when you have a work of faith, you see the work as God sees it. You're not afraid of the things around you that scares most of God's people. And very frankly, that's why a lot of people don't join a church. A lot of people never join a church in their life. You know why? They want no accountability, and they don't want to. They want to they maintain their spirituality, and they think that they don't have to be part of a New Testament local church to really serve God. And obviously, you don't have to join a church to go to heaven, but you've got to join a church to have a work of faith. There ain't nowhere in that Bible where God ever told you to work outside a New Testament local church. There's nowhere in that Bible where a child of God of the New Testament is ever excluded from being part of a local New Testament church that is involved in ministry, and there will never be a ministry that it should not be run and operated within the confines of a local church. Outside of that, you got your own brand of faith, but isn't it a Bible New Testament line of faith? The thing that first set this church apart and the first that made it a great example was its work of faith. Second thing was this labor of love. He said down there, so that ye were in samples to all that believe, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love. Now, I've had a distinct advantage over a lot of you is the fact that I've got to watch God's people for a number of years. Not only have I got to watch them, but I've got to work with them and deal with them through problems and probably just about every problem that a person can get into. I've watched how they reacted. I've watched how they responded. I've watched how they did what's right. Some of them did what was wrong. Some of them didn't give a flip. I've watched every scenario there is. And I firmly come to the conclusion that I totally agree when the Bible basically lays out that there's three types of Christians. And, and you know what? He says that over and over again in so many different ways. And we've looked at it many, many times. I find that there are many of God's people. Now, these people are saved and they're going to heaven. But they serve God out of fear. They go to church every Sunday morning because they're afraid if they don't, God's going to give them cancer by Tuesday. Or God's going to kill their kid. Or God, and there, you know what? You've got preachers that pray on that. And they'll tell you that. And they'll hold you in a grip of fear uh, by telling you that if you don't do what's right, God's going to come down and whack you. 
Now, I'm not going to say that he's not going to come down and whack you because there's such a thing as chastisement in the Bible, but you ain't going to see me getting up and preaching that and beating you over the head. Let me tell you something. When it happens, then I'll work with you and we'll decide how it was. But you ain't going to hear me get up here and say, well, if you don't do this, God's going to kill you. Truth of the matter is, if God had his way in what should be right, we should all be dead anyhow. So I find some of God's people that serve him out of fear. And I always felt sorry for those people because they never got to the place in their relationship where they could ever have a comfortable time with God. We were, yesterday in our discipleship, we were, uh, we were talking about prayer on one of the lessons, and that was the lesson yesterday. And I gave them the Old Testament example back in Exodus where Moses uh, was pleading the nation of Israel's cause with God. Nikki called me afterwards and had some questions because when she read the chapter when she got home, it, it really confused her. Because she got looking at it, and when she read it, and we didn't really go through it in detail because of time, but when she read it, she, she, she obviously saw there where Moses was almost argumentative with God. And, he was, and she said, I just really, really, I, I didn't quite understand that. And I said, you know what? That's why the Bible says Moses spoke to God face to face like a man speaketh to his friend. Your relationship with God ought to be where you can say whatever you want to say to any way you got to say it to get your frustration out, and God just sits there and listens. While there were times, and if you don't know that, you don't know very much about praying. There were times when Moses got into that thing, boy, and he just told God, he says, you know what, God? He says, God says, I'm going to kill those people. Those people are the most self, unselfish people those selfish people in the world, I am going to come down and wipe them out. And Moses said, now look, Lord, let us reason together. Now, I know they're stupid, and I know they're dumb, and I know this and all that, but what are all these other nations going to say out there if you come down and whack them? And he plead his cause. You know what the Bible says? I know some of you have a tough time grasping this. You know what the Bible says? God listened to Moses, and then God repented from the evil he was going to do. You know what God said? He said, you know what, Moses, you're right. Then there's other places in there where Moses is going into God saying, God, kill them all, every one of them. I'm so sick and tired of them. And Mo God is saying, now, Moses, come on, slow down, take a couple deep breaths and just breathe this thing through. You know what? If Moses and God would have ever got together on the same day, they'd have wiped out the planet Earth. You know what it shows? It shows that my relationship with God is just as personal and honest and as open as it is with any human being on this earth that I can tell God whatever I'm feeling and not hold it back and lay it out however I got to lay it out. And God, because he knows the bottom line is my frustration is based on I want to do what's right and the circumstances are overwhelm me that I'm not evil against God, I'm not evil against the Word of God, that I desire a relationship and he is my best friend in the world. Most of God's people never get there. So they serve him out of fear, and the tragedy of that is they wind up serving God as slaves. Then you have some of God's people that just, pretty tough when you start spitting on your own glasses. <laughs> then you have some of God's people that they serve him for a reward. They're in this thing to see how big they can get and how much everybody can look at them. They study the Bible for one reason. They want to walk into a room and they want everybody to go, oh. 
They want, to, they want to get all the adoration and all. They want to take all the glory from God and put them on themselves. And they want to get in this thing called the ministry as high as up as they can. They want to live like the millennium's here now. They don't want their mansion over there. They want it here. They don't want the reward over there. They want it over here. And they want people to bow down and wreck. They want people to do everything in the world for them. Change my light bulb. Do this. Fix this. Do that. Come over here. I'm the pastor. Don't you know you got to take care of me? I'm the man of God. I'm the man of God. I'm the man of God. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And of course, I feel sorry for people like that. And I've seen pastors like that. And I've seen Christians like that. And I feel sorry for them because they serve God as hirelings. But every once in a while, you find a child of God that serves him and labors for him just because they love him. And they don't serve him as slaves. And they don't serve him as hirelings. They serve him as sons. And they do what they do because of the fact that they know what he did for them. They've invested their life finding out all the price that was paid for their salvation. They know every in and out of the Lord Jesus Christ, God, the Holy Spirit, and all of those things that God has put in their life. And they come to the point now where they know that there's nothing else worth living for. And I'm doing this just because I love Him. I don't want anything from it. I don't want any notoriety from it. I don't want a degree out of it. I don't want adoration of people out of it. I want to do it just because I love Him. And my dear friend, if you can ever get to that place in your life, you'll understand what it means to have a labor of love. A lot of things go along with that. I mean, you can say that all you want, that I, that's the way I do it, but you know what? It's come that back, that old thing of example and sample. See, we'll talk about it here in a minute. Then the third thing that set this church apart and made him an example was a patience of hope. A patience of hope. He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope that are in, in our Lord Jesus Christ and the sight of God and our Father. Patience of hope. Now, that's one of the greatest virtues a Christian can have is patience. Unfortunately, none of us have that probably the way that we should. And I've found in my life, as hard as I've worked at being patient with some things, that working on patience in a general sense doesn't cover all the deals. I'm fine about myself. I can be patient with some things and not with others. Now, why is that? Why doesn't the blanket of patience wrap me up completely in everything? And you learn very quickly that patience is the greatest virtue a child of God can have. And I'm going to tell you something. Patience is important in a church in these last days because there's so much going on around you that turns things upside down. We live in a very chaotic world that is not given the much patience. We live in a very chaotic world that isn't given much of any kind of patience. And I've told you this before. We live in a world where we want everything right now and the world does its best to give it that because they know we'll pay for it because we're such impatient people. Uh, it's incredible. It, sometimes I just have to sit back and just go in awe at how this world, at what a fast pace and what it demands right now. I've seen people waiting in line at the bank where there's maybe two, four tellers. Now there's only two because it's their lunch hour. And you know what? Here's how it works. You get off your lunch hour, you go to the bank. They got to eat, so they go to lunch. See how it works? So instead of four, there's two. And I've seen people just so impatient. 
I'm looking at me in the mirror now. <laughs> this is what I do at the bank, you know. And they're just, they're just, they can just tell. And, they, and, and I don't know why, I, and, they, and they want me to know they're in patience like I'm going to walk up and say, tough day. Because they go, they go, <sighs> <sighs> so everybody around them knows they're impatient, see. We're just a very impatient people. We want everything right now. When my parents brought their first house, they were married for like 10 years before they bought their first house. You know what? Boy, you get married today, you go out and buy a house. Why? Because that's what society says you do. do. I mean, when it comes to cars, we don't want to buy a, an older car and work our way up. No, no, we got to have the very best. And you see, they make it so easy because they will give you all the money you need at 25% interest. And they know that our desire to have is more than our desire to be patient. I mean, I remember, and I've told you this before, but we got new people here. I remember, I remember in Canton, Ohio, that's where I'm from. I remember in Canton, Ohio, the first McDonald's that showed up. And you know what McDonald's was called? It was it revolutionized because in that day and age, you sat down and had dinner with your family. When you went to a restaurant, you sat down. There was no Taco Bells then. There was no Burger King. There was nothing. I was only about eight years old. And I remember the big golden arches on Raff Road. And my mom and dad and my sister, we went in there and we ate at the first McDonald's. It's the only one we had in Canton. Now, they're everywhere. And you know what? When we went there, you went in and it was called fast food. Because you went up to the counter, you ordered it, and right behind you was somebody putting it into the bag, and then you went out to your car. Now, that was in... Well, I don't know. I must have been eight years old. So that was in about 1958. Maybe I was 10, 1960. But today, you see, sometime after that, that fast food wasn't fast enough, so they had to put a fast drive-through lane in so you could get your food faster than you faster than you went in when you got it fast. You know why? Because our society wasn't fast enough. That's how it works. And we fall into that. Very subtle. Very subtle. I remember when I went to school, when I went to school, if you were a real man, you wore blue jeans. And you turned the cuffs up. And you wore white socks with penny loafers with a penny in the deal. Now, a penny won't do you any good, but back in those days, you could buy a lot with a penny. Not today. They just put them in your eyes when you're dead to hold your eyelids shut today because nothing else they can do with them. Well, they do that, but that's beside the point. And you know what? And, and, and the thing every kid hated going to school was when you buy new jeans that they're blue and they're stiff. Now, after about six months of going to school, your jeans got really where you wanted them. They got, they got washed now three or four hundred times. You wore them a lot. They got to fade a little bit from the washing bleaches and all those things. And then after six or seven, eight, nine months, you had a perfect pair of jeans. But you know what? Huh. I walked out there and out to the mall the other day, and there's an Abercrombie and Fitch there. There's a pair of jeans for $78. Got both knees ripped out. <laughs> Had a hole up here. I don't know what that was for. And looked like they were something out of the Salvation Army for 78 bucks. You know why? Because we're not willing to wait today for our jeans to wear out. We've got to have them right now the way we want them. You know why? No patience. No patience. I know this is true because at Christmas time, my kids bought me my first pair of washed out jeans. <laughs> now, I have washed out jeans, but they're the real thing. These are the phony <laughs> ones. <laughs> and I've done this test. 
I have worn them to Bible study, and I've worn them to places, and I've worn nicer jeans and these jeans, and nobody has ever looked at my nice blue denim jeans. I don't roll the cuffs up anymore. Nobody's ever looked at them and said, nice jeans, Bob. Why wear the old ones? That looks like, you know, they've been around off goodwill, you know. We got them off the truck, you know, and I reached in the container and got them out and said, oh, they fit, you know, and took them home. Everybody said, wow, look at those jeans. They're really nice. You going to know why that is? Because we've been programmed, see. We have no patience today. None of us do. I'm not preaching this just to you. I'm telling you, we're all in the same boat. And when it comes to doing the work of God in the last days, patience is a virtue. You know why? Because the world is upside down. It's inside out. It is chaotic. It is one gigantic mess. This country is an insane asylum run by the inmates. And we have to maintain an even strain in this world we live in. And you know what? It takes patience. Patience on what? Knowing that the Lord's coming. Knowing where I'm at in relationship to all that. That's what it takes. All right, now chapter 2. We looked at the model church, looking for a church. There it is. Now look at the model servant. Now you notice over the last couple of months we've had, we've seen this consistency of the Bible doctrine building in a lot of different ways about the attitude of being a servant. This chapter contains one of the greatest verses in all the Bible that shows what my attitude, I'm going to say me, should be toward uh, my being a servant versus by just being a minister. In fact, in this, in this passage is my personal verse for the ministry. In fact, I gave it to you one time, if you remember. He says in verse 3, For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanliness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust of the gospel. Oh, that's a rough verse. We were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. Some of us today have betrayed that trust. Even so we speak, as not pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet others, when ye might have been burdensome as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. What a great verse, a great passage. And that shows us one of the greatest concepts of what it takes to be a servant. You know, next year, and I told you about this, sometime next year we're going we're gonna to install our first deacons. And we have taken a couple of years. I want to give it a good three years. And uh, the way that thing will go down when it happens is that we'll take a Sunday and I'll go completely through the New Testament laying out the three offices that are in the New Testament local church. And we'll talk about what a deacon should be, what the qualifications are. And then, just like in Acts chapter 6, there won't be a vote. It ain't going to become a political thing. It won't be based on who's your buddy and who's your friend. It'll be based on once I lay it out as pastor, these are the qualifications. Does the guy fit or does he not? And then you will choose those men, and then I'll make the final determination based on, on uh, who and where and what and, and the, those situations. But the bottom line is, one of the qualities that I want you to look for is an attitude of a servant. That's what it takes to really make this thing work. And then along with verse 7 comes verse 8. Here comes my verse. This is it. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you 
not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls because you were dear unto us. The ministry for any pastor, and it has to start at the top. The ministry of a pastor is to be a servant. My job is not just to impart to you truth. My job is to impart, along with that, my very soul. My passion should become your passion. I firmly believe that my job as pastor is to find myself in God and the Word of God and then find God's vision for this church. Your job is to line up so close with me in this ministry that you see God's vision through my vision. God will not give you a vision for this church. He'll give me the vision for the church. You're not the pastor. I am. He'll give that to me if I do what's right. You getting on board and following the same principles that I have to follow, God will show you my vision through the concept of not just parting out the Word of God, but also our own souls. So you want to look for men. I'm sick and tired of selective ministers. I'm sick and tired of selective Christians. You'll want to look for men that will do any job that needs to be done. Many times without asking. You see, I never, I never, when I look at somebody for leadership, I, I, the key for me is not how much you know, but rather how much you see of what needs to be done. I mean, I find people all over the world that know a lot about the Bible, but finding the attitude of heart, no matter what dirty job it is, you don't get selective. You don't say, well, I'll work here, but I really don't want to work here. You don't say this or that. You just simply say, whatever the need is, wherever it's at, that's where you put me. That's where I'll go. There's no selection to it. And, of course, that comes from not somebody just knowing the Bible, but be willing to impart their own souls. I said it before. A successful ministry today necessitates the man in charge being right down in the mix of it with you. And that's why I don't care whatever problem you have. I've told you before, and I've chided some of you before about apologizing to me for bothering me to ask me a question about the Bible. There is nothing in this world I enjoy more than talking about the Word of God. And you have got to know that we have to have that freedom. You have to know that in your pastor you have someone, it doesn't matter what it is, when it is, if it's a legitimate thing and you're trying to figure the thing out or you have a legitimate problem you're dealing with, you know what, that's what I'm here for. I will never keep you at arm's length. I will never tell you that, <clears throat> go study it out for yourself. I mean, unless I'm already in the thing with you and giving you something to do. But uh, I learned a long time ago that it's more than just being willing to give the gospel of God on a Sunday and then you go your way and I go my way. You are part of my life as I should be part of your life. We're one big family here, and we help each other through everything that there is. There isn't nothing that you don't go through that I shouldn't feel your pain. I may not be able to do anything about it. <clears throat> you may have made a mistake to get that pain in the first place, but you know what? We've all made mistakes. It's the fact that we do the best we can do, but we do what needs to be done. And that's just not holding you back and saying, here's a Bible verse. Most pastors stand at the top of the stairs yelling at everybody, get up here where I'm at. 
Not too many pastors will take the time to walk down those stairs, put their arms around them, and walk them back up one step at a time. You know what? Sometimes those steps are a lot steeper than they appear. I've walked people up them steps and made it pretty quick. I've walked people up them steps and had to take it slow. I walked people up them steps and we went three steps and they fell back two. It doesn't matter as long as we're making forward progress. That's all it takes. Most, pa most churches aren't looking for a perfect pastor. They're just looking for a real one. Well, you're not going to find a perfect church, but you find a real one. It's as simple as that. And you're going to find that this is a great concept in here of not only just imparting the Word of God, but your own souls. Then look at chapter 3. Let's look at the model faith in the last days. Now the storyline is this. Paul's been separated from this church. I don't know what it did or what happened, but he says in chapter 2, verse 18, that Satan has hindered him. And he's away from this church, and he knows now that this church is going to get blasted. Because he knows what I know, and most of you know, and I tell you this all the time, the real struggles in your life don't come before you're saved. The real struggles in your life come after you're saved. Because the devil wants to keep you from ever plugging into God. So he'll double dip you every time, every time he can. He will nail you every way he can. Every time, every way, every place. And that's what he does. And you're going to find out that he's worried, Paul's worried that the attacks that this church is going to face is going to weaken. And he wants to be there with him. Boy, I understand where he's coming from. So he sends Timothy in verse 2 to help comfort them in their affliction. And he says in verse 3 that they not be moved, moved from the faith that they have. And he says in verse 4, remember I told you this tribulation would come. And I, I got a little note in my Bible here. It simply says, Paul the mother hen. Because I know that concept. I worry about some of you. I really do. Some of you are well on your way. Some of you are doing really well. Some of you have been around forever and you'll be there till the cows come home. But I worry about some of you. I worry about your struggles. I worry when I, I, when I don't see you. And stay in the Word of God the way that you should. Because I know how subtle it becomes. I know what you don't know. I know that before you know it, this thing hits you and it's so subtle that before you know it, you wake up and what you once thought you loved God and now has been replaced with something else. Doesn't take much. Doesn't take much. And I'll be honest with you. I like Paul. I play the mother hen more than I should probably. And I worry about some of you simply because I want you to make it. I want you to stand there at the judgment seat of Christ with everything that God has for you. And, you know, Timothy reports back in, in verse 6 that everything is fine, that they're stronger and better than ever. And in this particular story here, a great Bible concept come to light. And that is that when you have a work of faith, true biblical faith, that's what this church had. They weren't, these were not a bunch of Christians who just ran around talking about believing in God and their faith. These were Christians that had a working faith. Their church was working through uh, the ministry, understanding everything that, and their faith was tied to that work. True biblical faith will only get stronger, not weaker, in the face of adversity, if it's a biblical faith. He says in chapter 3, verse 11 through 13, Now God Himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you, 
And the Lord make you increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Now here comes the verse. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The end result of our trials, the end result of our trials will establish our hearts toward God and His Word. And Paul saw that in this church. And of course, that's a great set of principles. That's a great concept for all of us to understand that the, our trials, the things that we go through, our daily struggles, as long as we stay within the work of the ministry, the faith, the work of faith, together there isn't anything that none of us would have to face that we couldn't go through. Because there's enough people in this room right now that when you're weak, they'll be strong. And when they're weak, you have to be strong. That's why the concept of a work of faith within a New Testament local church that is not a perfect church, but a real church that has been set apart in a work of faith, labor of love, and a patience toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he comes in chapter 4, and he talks about the model walk. And I want to read here verse 13, where he begins, and he says, a great passage, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, we use this verse, or I do anyhow, many times when I do a funeral service. And I got a little three-point outline, you know, I'll talk about the certainty in death, we're all going to die. I'll talk about the hope in death, you know, Christ died on the cross. Then I'll talk about the comfort in death, the fact that your loved one, you know, um, is in heaven and you're going to, and all that stuff, you know. And that's the way, that's the way. But remember now, in chapter 1, we saw three things that set this church apart. A work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope. And what we have in this chapter when it comes to our model walk in these last days is the reality of our walk as a child of God is based on our understanding of Christ coming for us. There is a reason. I'm going to say it again. I've said it over and over and over again. I'm going to say it again. There is a reason why God saved you. There is a reason why God allowed you to be born, where you were born, when you were born, and all the events that brought you up to put you where you're at right now. It's no accident that you're here this morning. God has you here for a purpose. Maybe not the same purpose for everybody, but God has got you here. Because Psalms chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in the law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the river of waters that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. Apple trees don't bear apples in February. God allowed you to be born where you were born. God allowed you to have what you've got. God gave you the job that he gave you. God puts you everywhere he's put you, and God saved you for one purpose and puts you here. You have a season to bear fruit. I don't know how long your season is. Some of those seasons may be longer for some of you than others. I don't know how long that season is, but I know this. There's a beginning and there's an ending to every season. 
And there comes a point in your life where you can't do what you once were able to do. There comes a time in your life where, God, you pass the point of your, of your vital productivity. And you need to understand that the reality of our walk in these last days is not to live the way we want to live down here for ourselves, not to get caught up doing all the things we want to do and leaving God out in the cold. And that's what happens. We're living in a Christianity world today that has absolutely forgotten conveniently that Christ is coming back and we are living our lives like there will never be a judgment seat of Christ. God help us to see the great truth. He says in chapter 1, verse 10, remember, he said, And wait for his Son from heaven when he raised him from the dead, even Jesus, which delivereth us from the wrath to come. We're to wait for his Son from heaven. We have a job to do. And that job is to find out what God wants me to do with my season in this New Testament local church, a work of faith that produces a labor of love, that produces a patience of hope and realizing that the rapture of the church is coming, and we don't have a lot of time left. We are on the backside of this whole program of God in the last few seconds of time, and that's where God has stuck us at the outpost at the farthermost reaches. And God has said, Occupy till I come. My comfort, my comfort, my comfort. Verse 18, Wherefore comfort, one of these words, now, we always use that in the sense that because you lost a loved one and you're saved and they're saved, that you're going to see him again in heaven. And the bottom line is comfort yourself with that. Now, I'm not saying that isn't right. What I am saying when Paul wrote that, he wasn't thinking of funeral messages in mind. He was telling me in these last days it's going to get tough and it's going to get hard and there's going to be every temptation in the world for you to give God the sharp stick in the eye and do what you want to do. And what he's saying here is hold the line till he comes, and no matter how bad it gets, you can take comfort in one thing. Brother, sometimes this is all you can take comfort in, and it's simply this. No matter how bad it gets, it's only temporary. Not permanent. I'm in this for just a season. It's not permanent. So I'm not going to live my life like this life is permanent. It's temporary. I'm a pilgrim in a strange land. This old world is not my home. My home's laid up here beyond the blue. I have a season to do what my commander-in-chief has called me to do, and the reality of it is there's coming a judgment seat of Christ when he's going to airlift me out of here. And I'm to hold the line while I'm here. Chapter 5, the model life. He says in verse 1, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Now, where chapter 4 showed us the rapture of the church, chapter 5 lays out one of the greatest doctrines in all of the Bible, or the greatest doctrine in all of the Bible, and that would be the second coming of Christ. And the reason for that is that you've got to get them both in perspective. Because for you to really have patience and hold the line and occupy till he comes, you have to know where you're at in relationship to all of that. I mean, you have to. I know that many times, because some of you are, you know, 
somewhat at a disadvantage because you were born way after the Philadelphian church where all you've heard is the expose of garbage when it comes to the Bible. You've never had the advantage to be around and listen to or even read some of the great men who, who really believed what we believe today, which is looked at as heresy today. And there's a reason for our, as a church, having a patience of hope. And that is that we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. We saw it in chapter 4, where there's a rapture of the church. But again, in chapter 5, we see the great doctrine of the second coming of Christ to help solidify even more where I'm at in relationship to all this. Some great concepts here. In fact, when you come down and read this, and we're going to read it here in just a second, you're going to find that almost every key word and phrase found throughout the Bible that denotes the second coming of Christ is found in this chapter. Let me read it for you in chapter 5. Follow along with me. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. When they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. There's armor in Ephesians chapter 6. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. You know, I don't know <coughs> where it even begin in this chapter. There's so much here. But let's just begin to walk down through and, and do in the few minutes we have left what we can do. The first thing he says down here in verse 1, he says, but of the times and the seasons. You know, I don't know what you know about the Bible, but God has two great, two great ways of laying out His coming. One of them is in the concept of time. So you're going to find within that a day system. A day system is a period of time. You're going to find that he begins to focus down even closer to show you more specifics because the next time system that he has, uh, well, he really he starts out with a year system. And then he works down to a day system. And then he works down to an hour system. Years, days, and hours are time. So when he says the times and the seasons, you have no need. He takes for granted that you have studied your Bible enough to understand those three things. Now, if I was teaching this in the average Baptist church today, I would be hailed as a heretic. And that's okay. I remember a number of years ago, probably back in the early 70s, where I got to read a copy of George Wilson's book. George Wilson was a great Bible student. Wasn't a Bible scholar, a great Bible student. He lived in the 1800s, and he wrote a paper in 1887. His work went 1,055 pages and over 685,000 words. And what George Wilson laid out in the middle of the 1800s was the whole concept from the beginning to the end of the day system, the hour system, 
and the year system, showing clearly that the rapture of the church would take place sometime after the year 2000. Incredible work. In 150 years, there's never been one person be able to refute with an open Bible what George Wilson said in 1887. Who knows who George Wilson is today? Nobody. What's even more tragic is who cares? Because we are so caught up in buying worn-out jeans and getting our food fast, and we think that we can get our Bible just as fast. And, of course, you can't. So he says, the times, then the seasons. George Wilson also wrote in that great book, and I wished I could have kept the copy. I don't even know where to begin to get a copy of it today. But he also laid out the seasons. George Wilson said, if I remember this correctly, he said, you know what? He says, when God made everything, He made everything after a pattern. And when He gave this earth, He gave this earth four seasons. And on this earth, you have four seasons. Not the ones that sang, stop in the name of love. But summer, fall, winter, and spring. Did the four seasons sing that song? I don't know. I just threw that in there. Did they sing that song? Was that that? No, it wasn't. Oh, that was who? The Supremes. Okay. You're with me. And he began to lay out how that the Bible, within the Bible, there are there, on this earth for the times. This is why he says the times and the seasons. We know the time represent 7,000 years, or 6,000 years of man. And in that 6,000 year span, there are four seasons in your Bible. Dr. George Wilson laid it out when he laid it out that from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12 was spring. From Abraham to 606 B.C. with the captivity was summer. From 606 to Acts 7 was fall. And from Acts 7 to the second coming of Christ was winter. He understood things that the average Christian never could grasp today. But Paul understood. Now you think Paul was talking about the times and the seasons that he was talking about the time of the year? I don't think so. You go back to Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, you will find out how God changes those times and seasons. Credible study. Then he says in verse 2, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is defined for us as the second coming of Christ. Over 600 times in the Bible, you'll find it made a reference in the Old Testament alone. Then he says in verse 3, peace and safety. That's dealing with the Antichrist in Daniel chapter 8, verse 25, and Daniel chapter 11, verse 24, when he sets up his kingdom, the false kingdom. We're going to look at it next week in glorious detail. But he brings upon a world a false peace and a false safety, which everybody in this world will buy into in a heartbeat, because every legislator in this world, in this country, and around this world is trying to do the same thing. Then he talks about in verse 3, the woman in travail. And of course, you go to Revelation chapter 12, verse 2. You go to Isaiah chapter 21, verse 3. You go to John chapter 16, verse 30, 21. And Isaiah chapter 26, verse 17. You know that the woman in travail is Israel. Israel's like a woman going to give birth. One of the things, and I, you've heard me say this many, many times, and I got this from the book in George Wilson. It's not original. I remember George Wilson in his book saying, you know what? He says, watch Israel. He says, nobody can tell you the exact time that Christ is coming back. But he says it's instructive that when the Holy Spirit of God wanted to inform us of His coming, that He chose the example of a woman with child who was pained to be delivered, almost ready to be delivered. 
And he said, you know what? He says, when a woman has a, finds out she's, she's pregnant and she goes to the doctor, the doctor will try to figure the thing back and forth and give her what we call a due date. And that due date is the date that she is probably due. Now, not very many women ever hit the exact due date. Some do, some don't. But the exception proves the rule. Most women do not hit their due date. But most women know when their baby is coming very closely. And they cannot predict the day and the hour, but they know you and they better not stray too far from home because, ready or not, here it comes. And, of course, that's what we've got with the coming of Christ. I don't know the day and the hour. But I'm told to watch Israel. Israel is pained to be delivered as we speak this morning. And she's about ready to give birth. And that birth signifies all the prophetic events that's going to take place. He says in verse 5 and 6, children of the day, children of the night. Wow, what a great study concept that is. That takes you back all the way to Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, where the Bible says, God called the light day, the darkness he called night. You can connect those two together, and you'll find how that thing worked with children of the day and children of the night. Somebody said to me one time after I taught that, they raised their hand and they said, Well, Brother Bob, <clears throat> I always thought that was just the first day and the first night because that was the first you know, day and the first night, and I thought that's all that was. And I said, Well, that would be good, except this is the first day and the sun doesn't show up to the fourth day. Kind of tough to have a day and night literally without the sun. Don't you think? But it's not talking about that. You're going to find that great battle before you go to Genesis chapter, uh, first five verses. You're going to find that the battle is going to be light versus darkness. And darkness is going to have her children and light's going to have his. And the children of light should understand all of these things. Do you? Children of light, do you? Then verse 9. One of the greatest verses in all the Bible that shows you and I, in fact, the greatest verse in all the Bible that shows you and I that the church will not go through the tribulation period. It says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in Isaiah 57, Isaiah 64, Isaiah 54, Psalms 102, Israel gets God's wrath. In John 3.36, an unsaved man gets God's wrath, but a child of God the church was never appointed to wrath. We obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You and I aren't going through it. We get taken out, chapter 4, before it hits, chapter 5. That's the promise of His coming to me. Then in closing out His letter, in the same chapter, chapter 5, Paul gives us seven great principles. For us to have a model church, we've talked about that, a model faith, a model life, model servant, and a model walk. Now here's what he says in verse 16. He closes out his book with this. He says, rejoice evermore. His attitude of the child of God today in your outlook will be in direct proportion of what you know about your Bible. Because the world is so dark, the world is so bleak, the world is so black, the world is so downcast. That's why you find so many of God's people are the same way. Why? Because they don't understand the great lesson. You may lose some battles in this life, but I got some news for you. The war has already been won, folks. You know what the name Thessalonians means? It means victory. Victory. You've got the victory. You've overcome. 1 John chapter 2, verse 13. So he says, rejoice evermore. Somebody said, 
Brother Bob, are you enjoying your salvation in this rotten time period? Or are you enduring it? I just looked back and said, I'm enjoying my enduring, pal. What are you doing? I'm not downbeat. I know what's got to happen. I'll tell you something else. It's got to get a lot worse. Couldn't get a lot of worse. Probably will. I'm looking forward to it. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Ephesians chapter 6, we talked about it in the armor of God. Talked about praying always with all supplication. You need to learn how to pray. The greatest concept of God's people should ever learn about prayer is the fact that we don't know how to pray. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. And we find in Ephesians chapter 6 in our battle in this life that we are to pray. The Bible says pray without ceasing. And when you're over to Daniel chapter 10, you'll find why that's true. Here's a man that is praying to God for a particular situation. And for 21 days, that prayer can't get answered because God's help that he sent him is being held up by the prince of Persia. You know what it shows you in a kind of a glimpse capsule form? It shows you that every, every outcome on this earth, probably to some degree, is orchestrated by what battle takes place out there in the second heaven. And your prayer life is key to that. But we ain't got time to get into that this morning. Verse 18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It's all good, folks. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good, that them that love God are called according to his purpose. The more you become Christ-like, the more you bear his suffering, the more you fulfill the will of God in your life of becoming more like Christ. Verse 19, the fourth one, Quench not the Spirit. Spirit of God is the key to everything in your life. Get to know how it works. Bible says that you're to try the spirits, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Don't believe every spirit. Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that God's spirit bears witness with our spirit, that we are the sons of God. You have within inside you the spirit of God living inside you. Get to know how to use that spirit. Let that spirit use you. Get comfortable with understanding how that you use the Holy Spirit of God in your life, why God gave him to you. He didn't give them to you just to give you a nice, warm, bumbly feelings when you get a spiritual uh, feeling about something. That Holy Spirit of God was given to you as a guide. And there's a way to know God's Spirit and to use God's Spirit so you don't make any dumb decisions in life. Every dumb decision in life that a child of God has made and got themselves in a, in a mess is simply based on the fact that they violated the first law of the relationship with Christ, and that is using the Holy Spirit of God as your guide. He will never guide you the wrong way. So learn how to use the guide. Verse 20, despise not prophesying. Preach the Word of God. We live in, a, I've said this before, we live in a world today where everybody teaches. And of course, uh, that's what's wrong with churches. In my way of thinking, no man can ever be a pastor unless he can preach. I mean, uh, you can teach and be some great teachers, and that's your gift and that's your calling. And I'm all for it. But you try to build a church just by teaching, you will fall flat on your face. Because you have to have the doability of being able to get up and lay out the Word of God and teach it in a civilized manner. And then there's times when you have to be as uncivilized as you can be and just rip the paint right off the walls. If you can't do the balance, stay out of the ministry as far as pastoring is concerned. You can teach people. You can teach the Bible. There's a great need for that. But preaching this country... The Philadelphian church age was not built on teaching. It was built on preaching. 
and uh, the average pastor today couldn't get his voice above three decibel levels, if people would have a heart attack. And of course, despise not prophesying. That's preaching. Then the next one, 6, verse 21, great one. Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. We live in a world that says, don't judge me, don't judge me, don't judge me. Yet the Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians, he that is spiritual judgeth all things. You see, we have to make judgment calls in our life about everything. And we have to have an absolute standard and an absolute guide to make that judgment. That's why the Bible says, try the spirits. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.13, you compare spiritual with spiritual. That's why God gave you the Bible. You take Scripture with Scripture. That's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. Once you run it through the Bible, it may not be profitable for you. Now, I don't ever judge anybody of what, whether they do or whether they don't. That's outside my church. You come to me and you say, hey, I think I'm going to do this. What do you think? I'll tell you. If you come to me and say, I'm going to do this, I'll say, have a nice time. If I feel like you don't let me in and you don't want my opinion, then I won't give you my opinion, more based on the Bible says. And then when you screw it up, then we'll go from there. But the bottom line is this. We all have to make judgments. Make sure those judgments are based on an absolute standard. There are people that will come into your children's lives that you'll have to say no as they grow up. And if you don't, there'll become a day when you will go to church without your kid and they'll be out with somebody else. It's as simple as that. There has to be a time when you use spiritual insight and spiritual judgment and you prove all things and then you'll hold fast to that which is good. There'll be people in your life that you'll have to say, I can't have a relationship with you anymore. It's not profitable for me. It's not good. You drag me down. I'm trying to get my life together with God, and you keep wanting to do the other side, and I'm not strong enough, so the only thing I can do is say, sayonara, senorita. And off you go. That's Spanish. <laughs> not Greek. Spanish. I'm not a Greek geek. But I am pretty fluent in Spanish. Nacho about grande with extra beans. Got it. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Great concept. Then he says, verse 22, abstain from all appearances of evil. That takes us back to Romans 14 and 15, where it talked about that no man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. There's always somebody watching your life. Always somebody watching your life. Then he says in verse 23, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blameless soul, blameless spirit, blameless body. Because this church is to have, to be a, this church was a model church. It was an ensample. It wasn't based on just what they said, but what they really were. It was a model church as a model servant because they were giving of themselves. They had a model faith that established their heart through the trials and the tribulations they went through. They had a model walk in the last days because they understood that the rapture was coming and God put them here for a season. And then they had a model life because all things in perspective, everything that we do, everything that we do as a church and everything that you and I do as individuals has to be done against one doctrine in the Bible, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the premier doctrine of the Word of God, and everything in our lives goes up against that day. That day. Model church, 
Model servant. Model faith. Model walk. Model life. Every head bowed and every eye closed. <clears throat> now we're going to be finished here in just a moment and we'll be out of here and on our way. Well, let me just say this to you here. I don't know who you are today or where you're at in your own personal relationship with the Lord, but I know this. I know that the Bible...